a march by the musician and composer Thomas DGXYHL, which is, of course, a pseudonym. Uh, nobody that I know has DGXYHL as their last name. Um, but Thomas uses a pseudonym because he is part of the protest movement in Hong Kong. And in fact, that piece, Glory to Hong Kong, is one of the most popular of the protest songs, with some even regarding it as the national anthem for Hong Kong. The piece is interesting to me in many respects. It has uh, it has a British sound to it, right? Kind of a uh, the sun will never set on the British Empire sound. I think it could have been composed by Edward Elgar even. And the lyrics of the song really bear this out as well. It was written in Cantonese originally, but it's been translated into English. Here's just a sample. Though deep is the dread that lies ahead, yet still with our faith on we tread. Let blood rage afield. Our voice grows evermore for Hong Kong. May glory reign. Yeah, there's this like 18th century, 19th century nation building Christian hymn kind of a, a melange there. Uh, but it's really a stirring song in many respects, even though it does kind of conjure up this bygone empire that uh, stirs up complicated feelings, I think, for many of us. But if you see the video with thousands of protesters with their masks on, uh, many are covering the rest of their faces from video surveillance. It's, uh, well, it's quite affecting in many, many ways. I think, too, that the song is indicative of Hong Kong's search for a national identity in these troubled times as well. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Seth Bosted. On the program today, I'm going to feature music by several composers living and working in Hong Kong. And because it is such a troubled political environment, I thought that I would speak with an expert on the protests, too. So I was fortunate enough to be able to speak to Antony DePirin. Anthony DePirin has written about the protests for The Atlantic, The Guardian, uh, The New Statesman. He's been interviewed by CNN, CNBC, CBC, the BBC, a veritable alphabet soup of uh, world-respected news outlets. Uh, he's also the author of two books, City of Protest, A Recent History of Dissent in Hong Kong, and earlier this year, City on Fire, The Fight for Hong Kong. So I'm going to talk to Anthony about the political situation. How did we get here? Uh, where might we be going in Hong Kong? You know, how does this play itself out? I did not speak with any of the composers about politics. I want to be really clear about that because many of them work for universities. And uh, well, let's just say it's not a great career move uh, for them to talk about politics. So I only spoke with the composers, the ones that I did speak to about music. Uh, my goal here is to give you a sense of what's happening in Hong Kong and um, on the new music front, what uh, composers are doing musically, because uh, it's uh, not surprisingly, the new music scene there is, is really eclectic and diverse. Let's start, though, with a little bit of conversation with Anthony DePirin. Uh, the protests last year began when the government proposed to introduce a law that would enable the extradition of criminal suspects to face trial in, in mainland Chinese courts. And that would have put a hole in the firewall that's traditionally existed between the Hong Kong and the, and the mainland Chinese justice system since the handover. And so that was the spark that, that initiated the, the protest movement last year. And people were initially marching to, to stop the government implementing that extradition law. Uh, now, fairly early on in the movement, that was successful. The government initially announced that they were going to stop work on the bill. And eventually, a couple of months later, finally, formally, withdrew that bill from consideration in Hong Kong's legislature. But in the meantime, the protest movement itself had gotten uh, much broader than that. Um, it expanded not only to include demands related to 
the behavior of the police during the protests and in particular accusations of excessive use of force by police, um, uh, which has increased resonance today, of course, around the world. But um, but this was a, a key part of the movement last year in Hong Kong, uh, as well as demanding amnesties for protesters that people felt had been unfairly arrested. And then ultimately, the protest movement expanded out to embrace calls for greater democracy in Hong Kong. Um, and these are echoing calls that had been begun in, in had begun in protest movements. Um, going back many years in Hong Kong. Uh, and then as part of this movement, it began to embrace a, a, a wider sense of, of, of trying to build a, a, a Hong Kong identity or a separate Hong Kong uh, cultural uh, and indeed national identity. And I use the term national there, not in the sense of, of nation state. It certainly wasn't, uh, except on the very far fringes, a movement for Hong Kong independence, but a sense that uh, the Hong Kong people are a nation in the same way that uh, the, as some political scientists have argued, in the same way that the Quebecois are, are a nation in Canada or the Catalans in Spain uh, or, or similar, similar communities around the world. And so there's a, a sense that ultimately this protest movement grew into a movement um, asserting a unique Hong Kong identity. I mean, Hong Kong is, a, is, is, is such a, an interesting place anyway. And uh, I mean, my understanding was it always was a kind of, you know, semi-autonomous nation state city. <laughs> I mean, is that, um, and, and the understanding was that yes, it's gonna to revert to Chinese control, but like you said, there was this firewall or understanding. I mean, I think it's, it were a lot of Hong Kong people over the last couple of decades operating under this understanding that, that they were more or less gonna be left alone. Yeah, so the, the agreement when Hong Kong was returned from British rule to, to Chinese rule, was that it would operate under this one country, two systems formula that I'm sure many of your listeners will have heard about where Hong Kong retains all of its existing systems, including its own legal system, its own courts, uh, its own political system, uh, its own currency, its own financial system, everything, its own, even its own immigration control. So everything would be separate from the rest of China, uh, except that China would have ultimate control over, over the government um, and China would have the power to deal with Hong Kong's foreign affairs and defense, but everything else would be dealt by Hong Kong with by Hong Kong locally. And then in particular, as part of that, Hong Kong retained a whole lot of, of, of civil rights and, and freedoms that, um, that aren't enjoyed in the rest of China. And the agreement was that that would remain for 50 years. So um, until, from 1997, when the handover occurred until 2047, none of that would change. And then the, 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 the basic law, Hong Kong's constitution, um, basically provides that in 2047, unless China does anything, that, that will continue. And people, I think, here were expecting and hoping that arrangement would continue indefinitely, um, or to the extent that it didn't continue, by the time that changed, people's, I think, especially back in 1984, when the handover was first negotiated, people's working assumptions was that at some point, Hong, uh, mainland China would, as it became wealthier also become more politically liberal. So by the time we got to 2047, people were assuming, you know, China will be a, 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 a wealthy developed country and we'll have naturally embraced liberal democracies and all those rights and values and freedoms along the way. Um, but now here we are sort of 20 years in and, and it's clearly not working out that way. Yes, China is wealthy and developed, but it's uh, in many ways more authoritarian and less free than it was 20 years ago. Um, and what's happening now, I think, is the Hong Kong people realizing that things, that history is not moving in the direction they would have liked it to move um, and, and suddenly pushing back against that. And at the same time, a more 
authoritarian government in Beijing wanting to crack down on any parts of China that it feels are, are getting beyond its control. And that includes places like Xinjiang and places like Tibet. Um, and it now also includes places like Hong Kong. It's part of a fascinating conversation that I had with Anthony DePirin. He is so knowledgeable about Hong Kong history, the people of Hong Kong, what's been happening there recently, unfortunately drawing uh, the conclusion that uh, Hong Kong is now on the list of places that China seeks to control, but that's undeniably true. Uh, let's have some music now. This is a piece by Austin Yip. It's called Generations, and I talked with him a little bit about the piece. The work was in inspired by various music of various generations in Hong Kong. Um, I've named it the, the various uh, movements into Generation X, Y, and Z, uh, which particularly one movement that is uh, inspired by music of the Generation X, it's a quotation from Cantonese opera. So I was trying to, to quote uh, a line from from a Cantonese opera called Tai Lo Yifa. Uh, there is a very iconic section in, in, in this Cantonese opera that all Hong Kong people know it. So uh, it sounds like da 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 da, something like this. And then I quoted that and then I broke that apart and put it in the third movement of the work. So there are a lot of uh, quotations, like minor quotations, and also uh, uh, things that would address what people are, are, are interested in for, for various generations. I love that idea of writing music inspired by three successive generations of Hong Kong and starting with the younger generations and moving back to the older generation. Uh, the old generation here is Gen X, which is my generation, <laughs> but uh, I'll let that go. Uh, at any rate, uh, let's start, uh, let's hear this violin concerto, Generation by uh, Austin Yip. We're gonna start with the third movement. So the oldsters, Generation X, we're gonna hear that excerpt of, of Cantonese opera and go from there. Here is Patrick Yim on violin and Linda Yim on piano.
It's music by Austin Yip, his violin concerto generation. We heard third movement, a wonderful cadenza. Wow, brilliantly played too by Patrick Yim. And uh, an epilogue. And uh, this is inspired by three successive generations in Hong Kong. So that piece is inspired, or rather that movement, inspired by Generation X. And particularly a Cantonese opera, a very famous melody from Cantonese opera. I love this concept, this musical depiction of, of Hong Kong uh, by composer Austin Yip. I was curious to find out more about the contemporary music scene in Hong Kong in general, and several of the people that I talked to said, you have to talk to William Lane, uh, because he started the Hong Kong New Music Ensemble, which is one of the most important and uh, longest lasting new music ensembles in Hong Kong. And uh, so I did. Hello. Hi. Hey, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Good. How are you? Good. Yeah. Thanks for meeting a bit later. Um, oh, yeah, means, no problem. Means I'm more awake for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a public holiday here, so um, every, the streets oh. are pretty quiet, so it's, it's nice. Oh, yeah? What's yeah. what's the holiday? Uh, it's, um, well, celebrating or commemorating the handover of Hong Kong to China. So it's sort of, sort of handover day. So, okay. It's got to be kind of fraught, though, this year. I mean, that, that celebration, isn't it? It is. It is. And some national security legislation was just passed last night, actually. So, yeah, um, I saw that. Yeah, which is, yeah, every, everyone's kind of in shock at the moment. So, so yeah, it's an interesting time. Well, this show has been percolating for a while. So I, I, in my mind, I wanted to do something on the Hong Kong new music scene. I mean, mm. uh, and then the political yeah, situation yeah. became what it was. And I thought, you know, it, it kind of, in, in some respects, mirrors what's happening here. And it could be interesting to, uh, you know, we don't have an outside power per se. We, we did this to ourselves, mm -hmm. but, you know, right. um, but it is an interesting, you know, thought. So, um, so yeah, I just started reaching out to people and, and uh, your name came up a lot. So I appreciate your chatting mm -hmm. with me. And so, yeah, I guess first question, what, what's your background? How did you wind up in Hong Kong? Well, I actually moved here. Well, my, my background is um, I'm an Australian. Um, I'm born and born and raised in Tasmania, like the island state in southern Australia. Um, I left Australia in 2004, spent a few years in Europe, um, actually four years studying and working. And then in 2008, I ended up here in Hong Kong. Um, and I founded the Hong Kong New Music Ensemble in that year, um, as soon as I arrived. Um, that was 12 years ago now. At that time, there was quite a scattered scene. There wasn't any kind of, well, there was, there was a kind of contemporary music scene here, but there was no established ensemble for new music. And yeah, I sort of took it, took it upon myself to, to try to do something new and to, um, yeah, to, to try and work, work with the, the really, you know, uh, keen group of composers and musicians in the city to try and um, just, Built, built something a little bit different that couldn't be done in Europe or the States um, or in, in Australia, where I'm from. Mm -hmm. How so? Like, like um, can you elaborate on that? I sort of trained up um, at the, um, you know, with groups like Ensemble Modern and Ensemble Resonance. Um, that's kind of my background in Europe. Um, I actually arrived thinking, all right, can I do something similar to, to, to or, or build something similar to, to those groups in Europe? But of course, it was, it, it took a little while to realize that, of, of course, you can't sort of transplant a, a model of what, what 
um, was successful in another place and, and expected to, to do well in, in Asia. Um, so actually, you know, part of our, uh, one of our first projects here, um, one of them was working with a contemporary dance company. Another was working with a lot of um, traditional musicians, you know, Chinese traditional instruments um, and, and, you know, commissioning, uh, commissioning new works in, in sort of different formats. We, we actually started out as sort of more a collective rather than a fixed ensemble. Um, and, and that's probably because also it was just getting to know people and working with different artists, different composers, different musicians. Um, and from a collective, we sort of became sort of a fixed member ensemble. Um, yeah. What, what's the, the classical music scene like in Hong Kong just in general? And how does contemporary music then fit into that? In terms of the scene in general, um, there's sort of two main orchestras. There wasn't a whole lot of chamber music when I arrived. Um, that in the past year has really blossomed. There's like a, now an international chamber music festival. Um, there are quite a few contemporary music platforms, actually. A couple of um, very young um, contemporary, either sound art or contemporary music or electronic organizations that have, that have spurted out in the past 10 years. Um, there has, you know, and there also has been a sort of a composer's guild, which I think is over 20 years old. So that sort of a you know, consortium of composers sort of working together, um, presenting their own, um, their own concerts. So, so that, 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 um, composer's guild had, had been very active in the past, um, and, and still is quite active. Um, but yeah, in the past years, you know, we've had organizations like Contemporary Music King, led by Samson Young, Sound Pocket, um, founded by Yang Yang, um, which is sort of more focused on sound art. Um, and, and a couple of smaller, smaller ones as well, sort of smaller chamber groups that um, also focus a little bit on contemporary music. So, um, so yeah, these, these organizations have sort of grown up, grown up in the past um, 10 years, but still it's quite a, it's quite a young scene. Um, I would, I would say. That's William Lane from the Hong Kong New Music Ensemble, and let's hear them in action. This is from their album, Live from Prague, Volume 1. The piece is called Sailing Along the Heart of Remembrance, an evocative title by composer Hin Yan Austin Loing. <laughs> Thank you. 
That's an excerpt of a piece called Sailing Along the Heart of Remembrance. The composer is Hinyan Austin Loing. It's for string quartet, no problem there, right? We Westerners recognize that. Uh, but maybe you didn't recognize the other instrument, which is the guzheng, a uh, Chinese stringed instrument, one of my very favorite instruments in the world. I love the sound of that instrument. So this piece, Sailing Along the Heart of Remembrance, is for guzheng and string quartet. We heard the Hong Kong New Music Ensemble performing, and it's from their album, Live from Prague, Volume 1. Just a fantastic piece. Uh, the entire album is fantastic. Highly recommended. It's on Spotify, uh, any place you can get music. So check that out. Live from Prague, Volume 1, the Hong Kong New Music Ensemble. I'm featuring music on the program today by composers living and working in Hong Kong, and also did a deep dive with writer Anthony DePirin on the political situation there. And I didn't really talk to the composers so much about how politics are affecting them, wanted to stay out of that. But one thing that did come up over and over again in all of my conversations was this idea that though the new music scene, as, as William Lane said, is very young in Hong Kong, it's very much happening. People have a sense that it's growing. There are new ensembles forming. And uh, people have told me that that's happening in general in the arts in Hong Kong. It's one of the things that people are the most excited about, um, hoping that that will, will continue to be the case in Hong Kong. Uh, of course, uh, Hong Kong has always occupied a unique niche in the world, uh, economically, artistically. It's always been a place that people went to uh, to get away from other things in, in many respects. And the story of how that happened is, uh, is pretty fascinating. Here's Anthony DePirin. The British took Hong Kong in uh, 1842, and uh, when they first took Hong Kong, it was very sparsely populated. I mean, there were a few fishing villages and a few rural communities, but, um, you know, of course it was nothing like the place that it is today. Um, the British used it as a, as a, as a trading base and, and built it up over time. And, if, and I think with the, with the passing of time, people were encouraged to, to come and move there and, and, and try and make their fortunes from the rest of China. But then in particular, um, the, the, the Chinese community of Hong Kong built up over time as people um, fled things that were happening in the rest of China and, and tried to seek shelter and seek safety in British ruled Hong Kong. And so, you know, China had a very turbulent uh, 20th century, um, or even beginning at the, at the, at the end of the, the 19th century, there was the Taiping Rebellion, a, 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 a peasant uprising that, that cost millions of lives in, in mainland China. And then they had, of course, the collapse of the Qing Dynasty, followed by a, a very unstable warlord period. Uh, then there was the, the, the Japanese invasion and the Sino-Japanese War, which you know, was, again, a very difficult time for, for China, uh, followed by the Civil War, uh, and then after the communists came into power in 1949, there were the various uh, communist campaigns, such as the Great Leap Forward, which, which caused a famine, again, costing millions of lives, the, the Cultural Revolution, which upturned society. And so throughout this, you know, effectively century or more of history, people had uh, left China and whether they were free, they were fleeing war or famine or, or social disruption um, and made homes in Hong Kong, which was seen as a, as a safer um, more stable place, and so that's how Hong Kong's population um, really boomed over the over the you know, century and a half since the British first first occupied it. And of course, at the same time, that the British were encouraging a, a, an expatriate population who were building up the the economy using Hong Kong as a trading hub. So, you know, when you think about how you know, I mean, almost anywhere in the world changed 
from the, the mid from the mid 1800s to the to the end of the 20th century. Um, uh, it just so happened that, that Hong Kong was under British rule at the time that it went through that that period, and and the mainland was so unstable that it encouraged a lot of people from the mainland to come and 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 make their lives here. And so you have this this culture in Hong Kong that's been built up uh, over more than a century under British rule. Um, with a significant influence from from the British and from the West, but also, you know, still a predominantly Chinese and predominantly Southern Chinese Cantonese culture. Um, but then also, very interestingly, the other angle to uh, local Hong Kong culture was the so-called uh, southbound artists, writers, musicians, filmmakers in the post post Civil War period. And Shanghai was sort of the big creative center for. For in particular, for things like cinema and music, uh, in the mid twentieth, early and mid twentieth century in in China, and after the communists came to power, many of those people um, decamped to Hong Kong, and that included, of course, wealthy wealthy business people, tycoons, and so on from Shanghai, but also a lot of writers and artists and filmmakers, um, and so they they formed a core of what became a very strong um, cultural industry in Hong Kong in the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties, which which retained the the influence of of Shanghai and the mainland, and it was only moving into the the 70s and 80s that a truly local Hong Kong um, indigenous Cantonese culture began to grow up in, in all of those various cultural sectors. Hong Kong's 20th century in a nutshell. Uh, it was such a pleasure to speak with Anthony DePiran. As you, as you can hear, he has this marvelous ability to sum things up. Uh, he, he goes all in one take. I didn't have to edit him. <laughs> it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, fascinating stuff about Hong Kong. And uh, I have to uh, side with the composers and hope that, uh, that, that the, the amazing developments in the arts can continue, uh, even as uh, its, its political future is less certain than ever before. Let's hear some music now by Fung Lam, who is a lifelong Hong Kong resident, except for his studies. Uh, the youngest composer, I believe, to ever be commissioned by the BBC Proms. He wrote several orchestral pieces for the BBC Proms, uh, was composer in residence for the Hong Kong Symphony, and is having quite an illustrious career as a composer. I want to play a couple of excerpts of his orchestral works, but first, let's hear from him about his creative process. I'm really a, a scientific person. And actually, so, so when I did my A-levels, uh, high school, I did uh, physics, math, and music because I wanted to study either architecture or acoustical engineering because I had this romantic dream of designing a concert hall. And so actually when I went to university, I did start off by doing half acoustics and half music. And it was only in my second year, halfway through that I switched to do a pure music course. And then I concentrated in composition from masters and then eventually PhD also. Do you feel like now, all these years later, you still approach composition from kind of a scientific or spatial point of view, the, you know, the way you were thinking about things earlier? Um, I love playing with numbers or um, a, li a little bit of system or, or, or you know, compositional logic. So um, quite often I like to have an underlying uh, structure, framework, or even a little bit of game every now and then. Um, but usually it does not float to the top of my composition. So you definitely do not need to know what process I've gone through to, to listen to the music. 
but I find it quite often is the case where if you have something kind of uh, based on numbers or games or, or you know, uh, system, it generates some materials that you would not otherwise have been able to imagine. So that's why sometimes I like, uh, you know, just using system to generate materials. But I also always increasingly um, trust my ears. I think that's something that I had, I, it took me some years to learn to actually trust my ears or my imagination more. So now I think it's always a combination between the more logical side and the so-called uh, aesthetic side of my brain. That's composer Fung Lam talking about his creative process, the things that influence his music. Uh, he's primarily known for orchestral music. I want to play right now an excerpt of a piece he wrote for the BBC Prom called Illumination. Uh, Fung told me that he likes to write slow music. He likes music that unfolds very, very gradually, but yet holds the listener's interest. I think that's absolutely true of this piece, Illumination. Uh, the first five or six minutes are essentially a very slow buildup. Listen to what he does.
That's a little under half of a piece called Illumination, written for the BBC Proms by Hong Kong composer Fung Lam. Love uh, how he develops his materials so, so slowly, painstakingly, but there's always these beautiful, very interesting things happening in the texture of the piece. I think he's uh, especially good with harmonic texture in his orchestral music. Let's hear another excerpt. This is a piece called Quintessence, written for the Hong Kong Philharmonic when he was composer in residence there. Uh, this is from a live performance at the Beijing Modern Music Festival. We'll hear about three minutes.
More great orchestral writing from composer Fung Lam. The piece there is called Quintessence, written for the Hong Kong Philharmonic and here performed live at the Beijing Modern Music Festival, which is an unbelievable uh, music festival, as is the Shanghai New Music Week. I mean, just, uh, boy, do they have a budget <laughs> for new music. Um, so many orchestras, choruses, you name it. At any rate, that's wonderful music from Fung Lam, uh, perhaps one of the most uh, accomplished composers living in Hong Kong today. I'm going to play a piece now. This is a totally different direction, going radically different direction. Uh, this is by composer Gallison Lau. It's called In and Out. It's written for four harmonicas. He told me he named the piece that because, well, you blow in and out on the harmonica.
piece is so much fun. Uh, <laughs> the harmonica quartet, as you've never heard it before. Uh, assuming, of course, that you've heard harmonica quartet, which I had not until that piece. That uh, was written for the Veloz Quartet, a harmonica quartet that, of course, has to commission a lot of repertoire. Uh, and it was made possible by the Hong Kong Composers Guild, which we heard William Lane talking earlier in the program about the great work they're doing. That's such a fun piece, In and Out by Gallison Lau. That's all the time I have on the program for Relevant Tones. I'm Seth Bostead. I want to go out with one more track uh, from this amazing album by the Hong Kong New Music Ensemble, Live from Prague, Volume 1. This is a piece by composer Mai Fong Lin, and it is a three-movement work called Vortex Illusion. We're going to hear movement one, Hover Force. Thank you. 